Hi, I'm Phelan Johnson. And I'm Leah Simone Bowen, and we look at history a bit differently. Have you ever wondered how hundreds of wild horses came to inhabit an island in the Atlantic Ocean? Or what Lord of the Rings and a small town in Manitoba have in common? Or the burning question, did Canada invent the teen drama? The Secret Life of Canada is a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. New episodes available now wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Let me start at the beginning. Miss Chief Eagle Testicle in Sihkason Equalstinia Atakwasi. My name is Miss Chief Eagle Testicle, and I come from the stars. I will tell you Anato Yohkanis, a little sacred story. It is the story of this land. It is my story and the story of my people. But it is also your story, for we are all relatives. It is the story of where we have come from, and perhaps where we are going, although that part is up to you. It is not our way to tell you how to behave, yet we may show you the way. Though perhaps it's better for you to listen to what I say, not to what I do, and some good may come of this after all. That's the beginning of the salacious new memoir of the alter ego of superstar Cree artist Kent Monkman. It was narrated by Gail Maurice. Wearing beaded high heels and leaving a glittering pink trail as she fell to earth, Miss Chief Eagle Testicle has come to save us all with love. For decades, we have glimpsed this elemental being in his films and larger-than-life paintings, but we have never known Miss Chief's story. Until now. Danse Anin Boujou. Hello and welcome. This is Unreserved. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. She has sashayed through his canvas, challenging Canada's narrative for 20 years. But now, Kent Monkman's creation steps out to spread lessons in love the Cree way. I wanted to really anchor Miss Chief in Cree worldview, and I wanted her stitched into our way of seeing the world, our way of understanding the cosmos. Plus, after learning to see himself in a new way, Tunaha poet Smokey Sumac is helping others look at the world differently through the traditional concept of Azkanaki. To me, there's sort of two versions of my life story of how I was treated and how I was raised, and then as I came out and came into who I am, there's a new version of this story, and I uh, think that uh, those, those two versions really connect to make a whole. Today, these two spirit artivists are sharing two ways of seeing the world. It's full of deep, rich conversations on topics ranging from representation to sexuality, from language learning to auntie's teaching. Tunaha and trans mask poet Smokey Sumac is now a podcaster. And this is the Az Kanaki podcast, where we tell two versions of the same story. 
Here on Askanaki, we understand that colonization is the breaking of relationships. It is our original instructions to hold relationships at the center of everything, whether that be relationships to our lands, waters, children, plants. That's part of a new podcast created by Smokey Sumac. In his show, Smokey speaks with Indigenous storytellers and creators, and he does it with the Tunaha concept of Azkanaki. Smokey, welcome to Unreserved. Thank you. I'm so grateful to be here today. Tell me more about the title of this podcast. What does Azkanaki mean? Yeah, so Azkanaki is a Tanaka word that means to tell two versions of the same story. Um, but it's a concept that I've been kicking around for quite a few years here, and I was grateful to share it with this podcast. How did you first learn about this concept? I am a poet uh, first, and so I think one of the things that I was trying to do was write in the language as much as I could or include language. And so just as like when I was a little kid, I used to read the English dictionary from back to front. I was always a book nerd. Mm. I started to read the Tanaka dictionary to look for different understandings and different words that sort of struck me. Um, I did find this word, and I've just been thinking about it for, for many years and asking my elders about it. And the neat thing is that um, Oz is two. And so if you added different numbers in front of it, it could be multiple versions. It could be, you know, uh, 10 versions of the same story or four versions. So Oz Kanaki is two versions specifically. Mm. And why was this particular concept, um, why did it connect with you? What was personally meaningful about it? Really, what I've learned in Indigenous storytelling is there are some stories we have to tell exactly the same way. Those are typically historical narratives, making sure we get the names and dates right. But there are other stories that we can share and change and connect over. When I interact with Indigenous storytelling, I tend to see some of myself in there and my own experience. And that's why I believe our storytelling is so powerful and why representation matters so much. And so in this concept for the podcast, I really wanted to share the ways the work resonates with me. So we usually share a piece from the guest, and then I tell a story about it, and then they tell a story about it. So those are those two versions of the, the story as, as I'm interpreting it. Mm. And how does the concept connect to your, your personal journey as two-spirit transgender person? Yeah, I think uh, it always always connects back. I think that's so much of who I am and... I often say that I'm not someone who um, who leaves behind that version of me that, that grew up a young Indigenous girl and woman. And so to me, there's sort of two versions of my life story of how I was treated and how I was raised. And then as I came out and came into who I am as a transmasculine person and as a two-spirit person, there's, there's a new version of this story. And I, uh, yeah, I, I am excited to share all of that and all of me. And I think that uh, those those two versions really connect to make a whole. And what about your story as, as an adoptee? Do you, did you find some a connection there to the to concept? Yes, definitely. So I have been writing since, uh, since I was a young person. And I actually say I've always been writing two stories. Uh, my grade nine creative writing teacher, I wrote a piece called My Two Moms. And so I've always been thinking of my two stories as my biological family and my adoptive family, and the ways those interact and make me into who I am. And how are you connecting the concept of Az Kanaki to, to your guests in your podcast? 
So when I invited these guests, they're people I've had a relationship with, but more importantly, they're people whose work that I'm very excited about. And so I chose specific pieces that really spoke to me. And I asked my guests to tell their version of the story of their piece, whether that's a short story or a poem or a song. And then I told a version of my story that was linked to their piece as well. And so that's the way that I'm interpreting it for this podcast. Wow, that's interesting. Why did you want to combine the two stories in this way? I think for myself, I want people to understand that Indigenous storytelling is important because it allows us to see ourselves in a a story. When I grew up, I didn't have any representation of Indigenous people. In fact, I didn't even know we really wrote books or were on the radio or did these things. And so I really wanted to illustrate how that representation speaks to our experience and how Indigenous people in Canada, in in North America, and even across the world are linked through experience and through our stories. As you say, you spoke with a lot of Indigenous authors. Why is this this idea of, of Indigenous literature and talking to each other important to you? You know, Indigenous literature really changed my life. It really gave me a lifeline and made me realize that there were people like me in the world Um, I didn't know about Two-Spirit People until I started reading books and seeing representation of that, and that allowed me to understand myself. And so I always want to honor that, and I also want it to go wider so that young people like me are experiencing those stories as well. Hmm. When you say it it saved your life, what what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think that I was somebody who just really didn't know who I was. Uh, Growing up, I didn't have trans representation. I didn't know... Uh, that I could even do what I've done, which is, you know, go on testosterone, go on uh, hormone therapy. And so when I started to see representations of, first of all, Indigenous people and Indigenous stories, I started to recognize that maybe I wasn't so different and that maybe as an adoptee, there were actually people like me that had the same story as me. And that made me feel less isolated in the world. And then many of the people on my on my list talk about gender identity and talk about two-spirit concepts and um, that really gave me a lifeline in understanding that I could create this world and create this space for myself to be in the world mm-hmm. and now I hope to do that for other people as well. Do you remember what the what one of the first stories you read by Indigenous author was? I do. So I read Richard Van Camp's The Lesser Blessed first Um, And so it means a lot to me that he's actually the first guest on my Mm. podcast. (laughs) Yeah. And we want to play a clip from that first episode of your podcast from Uncle Richard. (laughs) Uncle Richard Van Camp. Let's just get a listen to that. I looked over at my friend Jennifer Nolan and I just had this flash. It was just this divine strike of lightning. And I just saw us all walking around with our baby pictures around our necks. And I thought, in a heartbeat, my God, how beautiful would that be to see the people we know and we think we know and strangers with these little baby pictures around their necks. And also with your love and your your own children and your parents, if you were to see that, you would never take them for granted as divine human beings. And I said to Jennifer, I said, wouldn't that be really cool if we all just started wearing our baby pictures around our necks? And I could see what you were like as a baby. You could see what I was like as a baby. And she was like, oh my God, you need to go home and write that story. And I went home and I it just the voice came to me, the timing was right, and I think I wrote that in several days. And then of course you spent 18 years honing it and rewriting it. 
But basically, the spirit was there. Richard is talking about his story, Show Me Yours. Love, love, love that story. <laughs> oh, I just weep. Mm-hmm. That guy makes me weep. Um, now, that's a story you asked him to read on your podcast. Why yes. did you want to include this story? Well, I think uh, I've been in a lot of different therapy over my life, really. And I've been working a lot on supporting my inner child. And that story every time makes me smile and also makes me weep because as an adoptee, I, I spent the first two months of my life in foster care. So when I think of those newborn newborn months and uh, those first days in the on on this earth, I didn't have a lot of connection. And so this story really strikes me as something about honoring those babies inside us. Mm-hmm. Um, what role did Richard play and, and his writing in your life when it when it comes to this path that you're walking? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I often say Richard gave me words uh, when I didn't have them. So mm-hmm. he has another short story called We To Go War. And there's a character named Dove who is a non-binary character and a two-spirit character. And there, Dove says, some days I wake up a boy, some days I wake up a girl, I don't question it anymore. And that was a space for me where I was like, oh, maybe I don't have to question all the time where I fit into these categories and I can sort of honor who I am the way that Richard's honoring these characters. And he also has a short story called Aliens that is a trans masculine love story that really lifted my heart and made me believe that love was possible. So, Mm. yeah. Now, you identify as Mm -hmm. two-spirit, and that's a concept that maybe um, non-Indigenous people might not know. Can you explain what that means? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so for myself, it can mean a multitude of things, but uh, it's actually a term that came in 1990 over in Manitoba, actually, from an Anishinaabe elder and a gathering of, at the time, were gay and lesbian Indigenous people. And it's evolved over the years, but how I understand it is it's a term for Indigenous people who are under the diverse gender and sexuality spectrum. And it honors a unique place in our community of that space between genders. And sometimes often we were the the space between um, the bridge between different conversations. And we were often historically leaders in our communities and... Yeah, and that's 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 about all I know about that. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> is that something um, that the two spirit identity is, is that something that's recognized in your culture? Um, yes, I think what's been really great for myself is that I've lived sort of all over, and I've seen in many different indigenous cultures there can be a pretty strong gender binary. And when I moved home, um, and I tell this story in the podcast, but one of the aunties sort of said, "Ah, you're not special." You're just Tunaka. Mm. And I really appreciated that because in our culture, it doesn't necessarily matter who you are or even who you say you are. It matters what you do and it matters what you bring to the table. And so rather than being even queer or different, we are just part and parcel of what it means to be Tunaka. We're part of the community. Mm, I love that. You're all in the circle together, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how did that change how you felt about being Two-Spirit? I think it really made me realize that at home, well, well, it's funny, right? I can talk all over the world or I can be on CBC radio and, and at home it doesn't matter. It just matters that I know how to uh, bring someone coffee or check in with them <laughs> or say the words right. Um, and so that's been really amazing. And, and I think it made me feel safer 
but I also don't want to romanticize it. I want to say that, you know, I, I we still have work to do and that mm-hmm. I'm really supporting those conversations. And I think myself being at home and being out and proud has... Uh, I get inspired by the youth, really, because they have new words for genders and sexualities, and they are telling me all kinds of things, and they're very proud of who they are. And somebody said to me once, you change the world just by being in the room. And I think that that's that's what I try to hold on to and make sure that I'm in those rooms so that the kids can see me. I love that. You change the world by just being in the room. Mm -hmm. Can you give me a, a practical example in your own life of how the concept of as Kanaki can help people understand their worlds better? Yeah, definitely. I think that too often when something happens, we immediately decide that there's there's one, we attach a feeling to a story perhaps, and then there's only one way of being. And uh, my husband and I actually have th- these conversations all the time. You know, so he'll say something and I'll be like, well you're mad at me or you were mean to me. And then we will go back over the conversation, especially if it's in text messages. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll go back over the conversation and then he'll say, well, this is what I meant. Or this is what I was saying. And if I can keep myself open enough, I can recognize there are two versions of the story and maybe the one I'm telling (laughs) isn't exactly right. Mm. Good tip for people as they move <laughs> forward. Is it a concept that shows up in, in your work? Because you also do workshops with 2S LGBTQI plus people. And how does it show up there? Yes, definitely. I think that I'm always talking about Tunaka understandings of the world. And so when I'm talking to groups that are trying to understand themselves, I ask, like, what is the possibility Can you imagine a new story for yourself? I think often with Two-Spirit Youth or even adults, I think for myself, I was worried that I was too old to transition and I was like 27 and somebody said to me, you know, people people are transitioning in their 70s. And I went, oh, wow. So I think sometimes we put all these, well, I couldn't do it because of this or I can't do it because of that. And so when I ask, is there another story we can tell, I think it opens up space for hope and for dreaming and for imagining a new world, which is the first step to really bringing that new world into being. Mm. The concept certainly has had a big impact on you, but how do others react when you, when you talk about this uh, in those rooms? I, I think that we're really often stuck in our ways, and so it opens up something for people. I have a friend who says they spend an hour with me and then they need 30 days to process. So I, <laughs> I, I don't always get the uh, immediate reaction, but I think it's when I hear, I get sometimes an email or a Facebook message down the road and someone says, you know, I am thinking about starting hormone therapy or I came out to my parents. Those Those big moments in their lives that they share with me, I... I know that what I'm doing and what what I'm teaching is resonating with people. Ah, that's beautiful. Thank you. I'm gonna have it. Auntie's gonna have a cry right here. <laughs> <laughs> and what is the 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 biggest message that you hope that uh, you know listeners, whether they be two spirit or not, will will continue to walk on with? You know, my husband is a Star Wars fan, and so he trans- <laughs> he really Star Trek over here. He, oh, there you go. Because <laughs> I always say, you know, we all have a role. We all have a place in this 
in this world. And he says, everyone has a role in the rebellion. <laughs> so I think that my piece of, of all of this is that I hope that they can sit with some new stories and see themselves. I hope that you listeners uh, see yourself and hear something that helps you come closer to who you are. Because for me, that's the journey all the time is returning to ourselves. Mm. Rebel on and rebel loud, my <laughs> there friend. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for your time today. Husukilkukni. <laughs> Egosani. Smokey Sumac is a two spirit trans masculine Tunaha poet. He's the host of the new As Kanaki podcast. You're listening to Unreserved on CBC Radio 1, Sirius XM, U.S. Public Radio, and Native Voice 1. I'm Rosanna Deerchild. To help my people, I made mischief with the newcomers' leaders. A few years after the prince's visit, I had another opportunity to try to influence those laying claim to our lands. I discovered that the newcomers' leaders were meeting in the place known to the Mi'kmaq as Booksack, but the newcomers called it Charlottetown. Through my networks of animals, plants, and traders, I learned that in this meeting, a great game for power was being played between the leaders of the British settler colonies on our lands. The provincial leaders recognized the wisdom of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy structure and were trying to emulate it to form a government, but they did not understand its deep roots in Uski and spent their time squabbling instead. Their ragtag governments were fighting amongst each other for territory and influence, and couldn't even agree where to establish the seat of power for these lands over which they had no legal, moral, or spiritual authority. It's unlike any memoir you will ever experience. Ms. Chief Eagle Testicle is the shape-shifting, time-traveling, elemental alter ego of Kent Monkman. The Cree visual artist is well known for his larger-than-life paintings and films that feature Ms. Chief. She's been spreading love and challenging colonial narratives since 2002. And now we get to read her story in her own words. The Memoirs of Miss Chief Eagle Testicle, a true and exact accounting of the history of Turtle Island, is two volumes. The gorgeous books weave a reimagined history through Miss Chief's narrative, Kent's gorgeous paintings, and Cree cosmology and knowledge. Kent and his longtime collaborator, Giselle Gordon, spent six years creating the project. By reframing history, the artist and the writer invite us to reshape our understanding of where we come from and how we got here. Kent, Giselle, welcome to Unreserved. Hi, and thanks for having us. It's good to be here. And let me just say, uh, I said this before hitting record, but I really, really enjoyed uh, the memoirs. It was a wonderful experience to to read finally uh, Miss Chief's story. And of course, co- um, combined with your beautiful paintings, Kent, it was, um, uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. We're so happy this book is finally done. 
Is it weird now? You know, how, how does it feel now that it's out in the world? It's been six years, lots of collaborating, lots of talking, lots of looking at pictures of her. And she sort of, sort of took out over your lives. How does it feel now that she's out in the world in her own stilettos? It's really amazing to see it go out into the world. People are just starting to digest it now. I mean, it's two volumes, so it's a lot to go through. And uh, as you noticed, uh, the end notes alone are really something to digest. And this is one of the things we wanted to accomplish with this project was a very deep dive into history, a deep dive into Cree knowledge and the language and we wanted it all supported with uh, deep research. So, um, you know, it was a lot of work. We're not necessarily authors or novelists, but we, we approached it kind of as an art project. We refer to it as a societal art intervention. And mm. uh, now we're just kind of um, thrilled that uh, Miss Chief is bringing her memoirs to the world. And we completed the Canadian tour uh, just last week, and uh, we were we were just really excited to be able to um, treat it kind of also like performance art, and, and you know bring Miss Chief to the stage. And uh, we had an awesome uh, couple of weeks touring the book across the country. And when you say uh, this was an art intervention, um, what do you mean by that, Giselle? Maybe we'll get you to feel that question. Sure. Well, originally, when we pitched it to um, Jared Bland and Scott Sellers of McClellan and Stewart, we had pitched it as we would really approach this as if Mischief was real and completely talk about her as an entity in her own right the whole way through. She would do all appearances, all signings, um, all interviews would be Mischief. So it would be performance art on a grand scale with the help of national media. And that was really a full-scale societal art intervention that we were envisioning. But Kent is extremely busy. So for Mischief to be uh, that present would be um, would mean his whole painting schedule would be severely interrupted. And he's his, uh, he can't stop. Um, he has so many paintings he's working on at, at a time. So this is kind of a hybrid version where... Together with Mischief, we're bringing the book out to the world. And um, it's, uh, yeah, for us, we feel like we're emerging writers, but uh, we have been collaborating for 30 years and thinking about Mischief and making films with her and art installations and performances for a long time. So it's really learning to think with her brain with the help of our four Cree advisors, Dr. Belinda Daniels, Dr. Keith Goulet, Floyd Favel and Gail Maurice, who we could not have done this book without. Mm, of course, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. But Kent, paint our audience a picture of Miss Chief's creation and descent to earth from the first chapter, A Star is Born. So this was one of the gaps in her story that uh, I hadn't uh, arrived at yet. And the memoir was the opportunity to uh, figure out where she came from. And when we started collaborating on this project, uh, one of the first things Floyd Fable said was she needs a creation story. So we stitched her into what we know of the Cree creation story. You know, we're not, we don't have the entire creation story. That's for only certain people to know. But from what uh, Floyd was able to share with us, we were able to create, you know, her origin in the stars. And uh, 
we believe that we all come from the stars. I mean, that's that's the science in Cree knowledge is that we know that we all the building blocks of life are, are in the stars. And um, Giselle also collaborated with uh, a friend of hers, Kim Venn, who is an astrophysicist. And so we brought Cree knowledge, astrophysics, and created mischief out of stardust. And, and uh, she plummets to Earth as this comet, you know, trailing pink gas and cosmic dust. And, uh, you know, that image alone was also inspirational for other paintings that came out of the memoir. So that was kind of the beauty of this project. You know, the, the paintings sort of furnished inspiration for the book. And now the book is kind of returning inspiration to painting. So it's kind of uh, been been an amazing project to have the, the inspiration going in both directions. Mm, that is amazing. Why was it important to to include Mischief's creation story as part of as part of the memoirs? Well, I wanted to really anchor Mischief in Cree worldview, and I wanted her stitched into our way of seeing the world, our way of understanding the cosmos. And um, we didn't know where she came from, so this was a way to figure out where she came from. It was also a way to figure out you know, who she was and to get to know her better. And we had to, we had a few big questions that we had to sort of resolve along the way that had to do with the limitations of her power. Why was she here? You know, what ultimately is her purpose? And so those were questions that Giselle and I spent a lot of time thinking and talking about and talking to our knowledge keepers and really trying to answer those questions about the character. You know, when I created her, I just sort of threw her into these landscape paintings that you know, were based on the settler paintings from the 19th century and off she went. But, you know, many, many parts of the character and her backstory were un, unformed, unresolved. So this was an opportunity to go deep into the character, figure out more about her. And uh, it was really an amazing journey. It was an amazing journey uh, into the Cree language and this is where we really wanted to anchor mischief in in that those ways of knowing. Now, as you said, you had previously taken her and sort of thrown her into these huge landscapes and this this overwhelming, almost colonial narrative of how they came here and created the country. Um, but she really challenged that narrative, and now you know she's doing the same thing, except in words. Why was it important for you to to tell her story in a memoir? Well, the idea for the memoir actually came out of museum labels that Giselle wrote uh, in collaboration with me for my uh, Shame and Pro uh, Prejudice exhibition. And, you know, when I created that exhibition, I wanted Mischief to narrate that story. I, I felt like, you know, this character was present. She was already in the painting. She was this observer, this witness of colonial history. And it made sense that Mischief would be the, the storyteller. She'd be the one narrating and, and bringing the audience through this story. So Giselle did an incredible job of, of writing very concise label texts. You know, they got distilled into like 120 words per label. And that's what Giselle did. And, and uh, it was such beautiful, powerful writing. And I was so impressed with how Giselle was able to take so many complex ideas and, and bring them so much power and beauty with these labels that... Uh, at that time, we were sort of joking that, well, Miss Chief should have her memoir, right? She, we've got the beginning of her story here now. But, you know, at the time we were we were so busy, we thought, well, we'll get to that maybe later when we retire. But the publisher saw Shame and Prejudice exhibition and approached me with and I said, you know, do you have any ideas for a book? Maybe we'd like to do a book project with you. 
And there we were able to pitch the memoir. You know, we had that project kind of in the back of our heads and we didn't really know how deep uh, of a dive it was going to be or how massive a project it was going to be. But when we pitched it, they loved the idea. And that was the beginning of the memoir. And why not your own story? I'm really boring compared to Miss Chief. So <laughs> there's, just, there's no question is. that Miss Chief is a far more dazzling and interesting story. And yet, in, in the second volume, you did find some space to weave in some of your own story into her, into her narrative. Why did you want to include your own story in hers and hers in yours? As we kind of moved through history and, and, and came into the present or into the 20th century, um, I decided that uh, history would be more uh, accessible. It would be more real to people if it was really brought forward through a human story. I was very close to my great-grandmother, Caroline Everett, who was born in St. Peter's, Manitoba. And that community was disbanded and basically ethnically cleansed from the Selkirk area in the early 20th century. So my family was you know, impacted by these colonial policies. And my grandmother and her, her siblings were, were sent to residential school, the Brandon Residential School. So I knew that our story, our personal family story, was the story of so many other Indigenous people, so many Cree people across this country, that making it, making it a personal story by stitching mischief into that personal narrative also really brought the story home for me, brought it home to Manitoba, brought it home to Winnipeg. And that was a way for me to, to really connect with those personal stories that are so much a part of these colonial narratives that people often forget. These are real human lives. These are human beings, you know, that uh, you read news feeds and you read statistics. But it's really important for, for Canadians, for the world to understand that these are these are human beings that have lived through these experiences. And to make it uh, as personal as possible was super important. Mm. It's a really beautiful but heart-wrenching honoring that you that you included your own family story in in uh, her memoirs. Um as you say the the written and recorded history of Turtle Island is full of violence and colonialism. Um but Miss Chief counters that history um with love and her unapologetic and fabulous sensuality. Why was it important that she come from that place of love and and body humor? That's embedded in, in Cree culture. And, you know, one of our first drafts we, we submitted to our knowledge keepers, they, they sent it back and, and uh, you know, they all said, make it funnier and make it sexier. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we found, we found ways to balance these dark uh, moments with humor. And one way we did that was just by connecting mischief to the other legendary beings. You know, she has this long relationship with, with Sagachuk. And so whenever we were sort of like finding it was getting too heavy, we would just think, well, she's got to go find Wasagachuk. And then, of course, when they meet, you know, wild things happen. And uh, <laughs> so, so that was our way to kind of like keep, keep the legendary beings present all the way up to the present, you know, through this epic story. And, and through that, we found, we found that balance. We found that balance of humor and sexiness. And, you know, it's in the language. And uh, we turned to our knowledge keepers, Floyd and Gail, for, you know, the, the, the filthy, uh, sexy words that are in Cree language. 
I'm Rosanna Deerchild, and this is Unreserved. My guests today are Kent Monkman and Giselle Gordon, who worked together for six years to create Mischief Eagle Testicles memoirs. It's the character's creation story, which is important to Cree values in cosmology. Here's what Giselle had to say about how she approaches the work as a non-Indigenous person. Well, as a settler, I think it's it's our work to be aware of our shared history. And, you know, we all need to read the TRC. We all need to understand what our role is in our present context and the history. And I've learned so much from Kent. I've learned so much from all of the amazing board members at Imaginative that I was on the board with for a long time taught me a great deal in the conversations that we had My husband and kids are Cree, but I always have to approach this carefully from the outside. So just always checking in, always asking our advisors, always checking with Kent and trying to be a a conduit, a bridge, a vehicle, a translator, rather than putting my own voice in there and really listening. I think that's key for all of us as settlers to really listen hard and, you know, get out of the way. Mm. Um, one of the things that that I noticed um, after reading the the memoirs is that in the beginning, to use a biblical phrase, uh, mischief comes from Pekan Gisik, the hole in the sky. Uh, she takes respite to Naski in the earth, and in the end turns to Nipi, which is a really interesting cycle to me. Was that intentional? What were you trying to uh, uh, say with that sort of? cycle that she goes through. Yeah, she begins in this elemental form and she returns to this elemental form. And I think it was a way for for us to communicate that we are all relatives. We are all made of nippy. You know, we are all in kinship together. And, you know, with Miss Chief returning to her elemental form was just a way of sending out that message that we all have to get along with each other. And um, I think it just has a re- it had a really beautiful way of bookending her story, you know, this return to her elemental nature. Mm. And I like the idea of standing along the Red River, honoring Mischief with some tobacco. Uh, since her first appearance in your work, you've used Mischief to challenge colonial narratives, uh, perceptions around sexuality and how Indigenous people are, are depicted how does giving mischief an actual voice, a narrative, a story, an origin story, a creation story contribute to those conversations? Well, I think it's, uh, you know, so much of my work has been about reversing the gaze and just giving some insight through mischief's voice at just at the depth and power and richness that exists in our cultures and to amplify the voices of our knowledge keepers, you know, to share that spotlight, to shed that light on just the vastness of what's in our communities, uh, the knowledge that our elders carry. Yeah, we really just wanted the, the message of love to get out there. You know, there's so much love in Cree uh, culture and in the language. By having Mischief become this vehicle through which, you know, we can share a little bit of that, you know, that really became one of the the driving forces of the book. Mm. How do you think this journey through time has changed Miss Chief's perspective on the world? I know you wanted her to have sort of limitations and uh, this ability or inability to only counter things with love. How do you think that she changed by becoming coming down from Pequonkee sick and and living this this history? Well, 
I think, again, one of the things that emerged when we were asking those tough questions about her purpose was that she really functions as this witness. And as this witness, you know, she's unable to to change the course of history, but she's there to see it and to sort of be able to tell the story. And there are moments that where it breaks her. And uh, those are, I think, some of the things that really created that that shift in her character. She starts just as this kind of playful character with this this experience of just wonder at all of creation. And then as she sees bad things happen, you know, she becomes kind of um, saddened by these things. But, you know, in the end, there is this transition in her character where she is able to sort of transcend it. You know, that was a, a significant sort of aspect of, of this character that we had to figure out her, her story arc. Mm. And Giselle, how has this changed your perspective of, of colonial history or has it? Oh, massive, like, uh, massively. It's the, well, for one, the worst things that I thought that I already knew were actually much worse when I read the firsthand accounts and the details that are omitted. Even if you think you've read and understood the depths of the callousness and the racism in our shared history, it's actually worse. So that was one thing. Also, on a very profound level that's changed my life is just the a greater connection to the Cree language, um, which we're, I'm learning to support my husband, Archie Pachawas, and our children, um, and to do this work with Kent. Even at the very beginnings of it, there's such generosity, hope, and connectedness embedded in the language. And there's, we're living in dark times where people are very um, despondent for good reason. We look around and there's not that much to feel hopeful about. But the more that we connected back to the Cree language with the help of our knowledge keepers to give us more access than we could understand, the more it always led to a place of hope, generosity, togetherness. And the love we're talking about is not an easy kind of love. It's the fierce love that you fight for, that guides you towards a good future and being, you know, we have a shared history, we can move towards a shared future but it's hard work. Mm. And as Miss Chief continues to walk through the world in her Louboutins and diaphanous scarves and little loincloths, what, how do you hope readers' um, perspectives are challenged or changed after, after reading her story, Kent? Well, I think, you know, most of, our, most of the audiences that I've encountered uh, as I toured, you know, my exhibitions and, and to a certain degree as I'm ter- also touring this book, most Canadians uh, were were taught only a fraction of the real history of this continent. So this book sort of peels back some layers and is there to reveal truths of our experiences. And we're hoping that people will do a deeper dive on their own. This book is a, it's one art project. It's one book. Um, but we're hoping that people will spend more time getting to know Indigenous stories to listen to Indigenous voices, to make space for Indigenous people, make space for our voices. And, you know, with the way the, the book ends, by honouring people in the, in our community with the portraits, it's really, a, again, about 
directing people to to these other incredible human beings that are doing amazing work in their own way, young and old. And uh, it, you know, it's, it, it was really a way to just amplify their voices as well. And Giselle, anything for you? Yeah, just um, everything that Ken said and just leading towards that space of uh, this series that Kent is doing, these portraits honoring powerful Indigenous leaders in all different kinds of communities. It's going to, he's going to be doing these paintings till he retires. There's so many hundreds and thousands of people that he still has to paint. And their voices and that inspiration it and the Idle No More movement is really what we were thinking of um, when the buffalo return. Um, as Chief brings the buffalo back, that's really a metaphor. I mean, it is happening, literally uh, happening, but also is a real a metaphor for the strength and the power of the Idle No More movement, which is still there. It's just, you know, in different, quieter ways, and it's inspired so many people, especially youth, who will lead us towards the future. And um, just to listen to those other voices, there's so many people making change that need to have uh, larger platforms. So if we can help with that, that's what we want to do. Absolutely. And and finally, what is the most important lesson um, that you think the world could use um, from Miss Chief and, and her story right now? Giselle. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say more love. Mischief is about love, and it keeps coming back to that for me. This world needs more love, and uh, Mischief is a, a, a beacon of that, and that's what we wanted the character to be, and that's what we wanted uh, to remind people about. Um, so more love, and, and with that, more hope. Giselle, Kent, thank you so much for your time today and this wonderful book. Thanks for having us, Rosanna. Thank you. Thank you so much. Kent Monkman is a multidisciplinary Cree artist and member of Fisher River Cree Nation in Treaty 5 territory. Giselle Gordon is a settler media artist and writer. They are both based in Dish with One Spoon territory, also known as Toronto. That's all our time on Radio Indigenous. This episode was produced by Laura Bone Steubing, Kim Kasher, Rhiannon Johnson, and Zoe Tennant. You can always find more on our website, cbc.ca slash unreserved. Download the podcast on the CBC Listen app or your favorite pod places. I'm your favorite cousin, Rosanna Deerchild, coming at you from Winnipeg in Treaty 1 territory. Gnaskmitnawa, I will say. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.